take your Bibles and open with me to Matthew 28. We'll be looking at the Great Commission once again. Matthew 28. It's on page 835 of the Pew Bible. And I'll begin reading in verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I am grateful for your word and that you have not left us in darkness. You have revealed your will to us, and it is clear and plain. I pray that your Spirit would help us flesh out how we live in accordance with it throughout our days, the days that you have numbered, the days that you have given to us upon this earth to complete the good things that you have prepared beforehand for us to do and to walk in. I pray that this message will only contribute to that end, that your name might be praised and that Jesus' name might be lifted up among all the peoples of the earth. I ask it in his name. Amen. Our focus in preaching for the month of September is global missions. And today's message is part two of four that we're doing on the Great Commission given by Jesus in Matthew 28. Last Sunday, we looked at verse 18 only, which reveals the universal authority of Jesus Christ. All authority, Jesus says in heaven and on earth, is given to me. As the eternal Son of God, Jesus entered history, broke the power of sin, destroyed the works of the devil, rose victorious over death, and God his Father has now installed him as heaven's true and rightful King. Jesus has the supreme right and the infinite power to achieve all his purposes in heaven and on earth without fail. Nothing in heaven and nothing on earth can thwart his plan to change the world into what he wants it to be. That's the authority behind the Great Commission we looked at last week. We might say that Jesus' authority is the, is the atlas of the Great Commission. He's upholding the Great Commission and he is the engine driving the Great Commission. As king over heaven and earth, he has the right 
to rule all nations, and he has the power to bring all nations into submission to himself. And based on that authority, Jesus then says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I I love this about Jesus. Before Jesus tells his disciples what to do, he reveals to them who he is. The crucified and risen Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Before Jesus tells his disciples how to serve, he reveals to them how powerful he is to save. No sin was too great for him to bear, and not even death itself could hold him in the grave. Before Jesus tells his disciples how far to go in their mission, he reveals to them how far his authority extends for the mission. No cosmic powers or earthly kingdoms or schoolboy or subatomic particle stands outside of his heavenly jurisdiction. That's really encouraging if you're a follower of Jesus. We owe all our allegiance to Jesus simply because he's creator and king of the universe. But as our creator and king relates to us through his cross, it is not the leadership of an exacting tyrant who could give a rip about our well-being. The way Jesus relates to everybody who trusts in him is as we see here in verses 18 to 19. Before commanding you to do anything for him, he reveals all that he is for you as the crucified and now risen Savior. And therein lies the beauty of pursuing what he wants us to do. Why wouldn't we want to serve this king who knew us more deeply than we could ever know ourselves, who saw down to the very core of our own hatred against him, and yet out of sheer love for the unlovely, he still came to die for our sins and rise victorious for our eternal happiness with God. Jesus' authority to rule the universe is the same authority he used to die for a countless multitude of sinners like us among the nations and raise himself up to gather every last one of them to himself. That's why we look today at the what of the Great Commission. This, This kind of king, this Savior King has all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, let's go and spread the news about him to the ends of the earth so that those who've never heard might hear of Jesus, might hear of his worth, of his excellence, of his authority, of his power, and of his kindness toward rebels who embrace his cross as their only hope for salvation. So I'm taking us now from the why of the Great Commission in verse 18 to the what of the Great Commission in verses 19 to 20. Last week, we looked at the authority behind the Great Commission. 
That's the why. Today we're looking at the nature of the Great Commission. The nature of the Great Commission. That's the what. So let's spend the rest of our time fleshing out the nature of the Great Commission. First, the task of the Great Commission belongs to the church. The task of the Great Commission belongs to the church. The command of Jesus in verse 19 to go and make disciples of all nations was not limited to the apostles and their ministry in the first century. Jesus' command is still binding on the church today. That may sound like an obvious point to some of you, but some will actually argue that Jesus' charge was limited to the 11 disciples there. That doesn't mean that these folks don't care for the lost. It just means that they don't see any compelling reason from Matthew 28 to tell Christians to go to the nations while so many remain lost at home. But I think the Bible leads us to a different answer. I agree that Jesus gave his command to the 11 disciples. That's clear in verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. They're the ones hearing it. But the command is given to the 11 in their role as disciples. In their role as disciples. Jesus wants more people to become what these 11 men already are in their role as disciples. So the very nature of discipleship, making more people into what Jesus himself has already made you to be, isn't a responsibility that ceases with the 11, but carries on to every disciple beginning with the 11. Their obedience to making disciples becomes the model for our obedience in making disciples. Something else to note is that Jesus gives his disciples a promise in verse 20 which is meant to encourage them throughout their mission. Read it with me in verse 20. And behold, I am with you always. We'll spend all of next week just on that phrase. I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus cannot mean that he would remain only with the eleven to the end of the age, because the eleven did not live to the end of the age Jesus is talking about here. They died within decades of hearing his command. Jesus' promise in verse 20 is good to the end of the age. That means to the day Jesus Christ returns to earth. There's a span of time between Jesus' resurrection and his return from heaven. And Jesus is making the promise that he will be with his church to the end of that age until he returns again from heaven. So if the promise to sustain the mission is good to the end of the age, then the command to do the mission is good to the end of the age as well. And we don't have to look very hard in the book of Acts or in the letters of Paul 
to see that making disciples is, in fact, the work of the church. So we who confess Jesus is Lord would do well to listen to Jesus' words and conform our lives to them. If he has won our allegiance through the blood he spilled for us and the crown he wears for us, then how could we not hang on his every word? If you're a Christian, these are your marching orders to make disciples of all nations. When you confess Jesus as your Savior, you signed up to give the rest of your life to this commission. You are the means by which Christ makes disciples of all nations. You are the means through which the word, the world is to hear the gospel of the kingdom. You are God's chosen instruments to penetrate darkness among the Alawi people in Syria. To translate the Bible among the Abaza people in Turkey. To overcome language barriers that churches may be planted among the Chalk people in Myanmar. That may mean you stay in a particular place, like Fort Worth, to strengthen local ministries, but global missions, making sure all nations hear the name of Jesus, that will be so much a part of you that all your efforts in local ministries will contribute to that great end of seeing multitudes from every nation worshiping Jesus as Lord, singing the songs we sing, praying the prayers we pray, crying the same tears of thanksgiving over the forgiveness of our sins that we cry. Which leads us right into our next observation. So the first thing we see is that the task belongs to the church. The second is that the task aims for all peoples. The task of the Great Commission aims for all peoples. Jesus says in verse 19, Go and make disciples of all nations. And by that, he doesn't mean make disciples of all nations in the sense of formal political unions with geographical boundaries like the USA or Côte d'Ivoire or Germany or China. The Bible suggests that Jesus has something different in mind when he says all nations. Namely, smaller people groups with various cultural and linguistic barriers to understanding the truth about Jesus. That's what he means by all nations. Smaller people groups with various cultural and linguistic barriers to understanding the truth about Jesus. So all nations has less to do with politics and geography and more to do with cultures and languages that oftentimes span those political and geographical boundaries. That's why we see God's promises to save the world applied not merely to nations in the Old Testament like Israel or those comparable to Israel like Assyria, but he also applies his promises to smaller people groups like tribes and clans and languages and peoples 
Such that even when we get to the very end of the Bible storyline in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, that's exactly who we see standing before the throne of God. By your blood you did ransom for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what Jesus has in mind when he says make disciples of all Nations. He has in mind not just individuals within geographical areas. He has in mind people groups, tribes, and languages, and peoples, and nations, and families. And why wouldn't he as the promised son of Abraham? Think back to how Matthew opens his gospel. How does Matthew open his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1? He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Part of Matthew's agenda is to help us see that by sending Jesus into the world, God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. We remember the promise he made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 18 and 22. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Matthew's gospel is a worldwide announcement that the long-awaited son of Abraham arrived in the person of Jesus, and by dying for sins and rising from the dead, Jesus has flung the door of salvation wide open for all the families of the earth. Anybody without distinction who comes and puts their faith in Jesus Christ will find themselves eternally blessed with the forgiveness of their sins and a righteousness before God that makes the angels marvel. The Great Commission includes all peoples without distinction because the atonement of Jesus Christ includes all peoples without distinction. Whether that's Canaanites and Hittites and Jebusites or Angori and Dongyang and Fulani and Swahili and the Sri Lankan Moor. The point is that Jesus' command here to make disciples of all nations, the point is that Jesus' command will not let us reason that we only have a responsibility to witness to the lost where we live. We cannot based on these words, limit the mission of Jesus Christ simply to witnessing to the lost where we live. The focus of the Great Commission is not amassing individual conversions to Christ wherever you happen to be, though that's included. The focus of the Great Commission is instead amassing individual conversions to Christ among all peoples of the world. The work of the gospel through the church, it's supposed to move and move and move and move until 
all peoples have a presence of the kingdom of God in their midst as seen in people confessing Jesus as Lord and gathering themselves into a church to worship and pray to Him together. It's supposed to advance until disciples are made among all 13,000 people groups scattered throughout the world. The task of global missions aims to reach all the unreached peoples of the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission will not let all of us settle in Fort Worth the rest of their lives. It won't let us all settle in Fort Worth the rest of our lives. Its focus is to so thrill the church with Christ's worldwide authority that we can't help but train and send more laborers into the harvest. Now that doesn't mean, that does not mean the outreach many of you practice with your neighbors is unimportant. It also doesn't mean that we should downplay any of the ministries you may have in the workplace or in educating your children or in care groups, or in teaching Sunday school, or in the public square, or in simply doing things like loving your neighbor. What it does mean is that all your various labors in those ministries should serve the onward march of the gospel to all nations. Paul didn't interpret Jesus' command to mean that every Christian had to pack their bags and move to the next people group. He left a Timothy in Ephesus to appoint elders. He left a Titus in Crete to put what was there back into order. He wanted these men, these types of men, to continue the work that he began while he moved on to plant. And when he asked the church in Rome to support his mission to Spain... To preach the gospel, he says, where Christ is yet to be named. He didn't expect to show up in Rome with all the Roman Christians' bags packed so that they could all go to Spain. He simply expected that their own ministries would only promote and excel the evangelization and discipleship of peoples where the gospel was yet known. In fact, Romans 15 is why we at Redeemer distinguish between local ministries and frontier missions. Local ministries and frontier missions. The focus of local ministries is the evangelization and discipleship of peoples where churches are present and where the gospel is known. People have easy access to the gospel. The cultural and linguistic barriers have been overcome. They can understand it. These places, what we might call local ministries, are where Paul-type missionaries can legitimately say, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Have you ever read Romans 15 and, and wondered... What in the world are you talking about, Paul? You have no more 
work in these regions all the way from Jerusalem around to Illyricum. What do you mean? Not all of the people have come to know Jesus. What do you mean you don't have any more work in the area? It's because he's planted the churches to carry on the work while he goes frontier. You stay here, hold down the fort, build local ministries that are healthy and honoring to Christ. I'm going to Spain. That's frontier missions. Frontier missions is the evangelization and discipleship of peoples where churches are non-existent and the gospel is yet to be known. It can't be accessed. And we want to equip people at Redeemer for both so that our local ministries never become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of the nations. We don't want care group to become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of the nations. We don't want marriage counseling to become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of the fact that you need a healthy marriage so that you can go. So that you can be a parable of Christ's church among the peoples. So we don't want our local ministries never to become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of the nations. And we don't want our frontier missions efforts ever to lose sight of the importance of establishing local ministries that honor Christ among all people groups. You have to pray about which one you are. Am I stay here, devote myself to local ministries, or am I going? Frontier. You have to pray. You either go or you send and support. Those are your two options. I guess there's a third option. You can be disobedient. Those are your two options that Jesus leaves you. You go or you send and you support. So the task belongs to the church and the task aims for all peoples. And now thirdly, the task of the Great Commission is simply making disciples of Jesus. The task is making disciples of Jesus. Our task is not merely relieving hunger among the poor. It is not merely changing public policy. It is not merely transforming the city. It is not merely what people are calling redeeming culture. It is not merely what some might call social justice. Our task as the church is to make disciples of Jesus among all peoples. This makes the church remarkably different than any government agency or the United Nations or Meals on Wheels or Habitat for Humanity. Christians may very well 
find their participation in these sorts of organizations, a way to love their neighbor, or to be a faithful presence in their community. But these organizations cannot meet the ultimate need of the nations. Only Christ can meet the ultimate need of the nations, the forgiveness of their sins and a right relationship with God. And we've been entrusted to proclaim to them how the forgiveness of the sins and the right relationship with God come about through the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Helping people see that is the primary business of the church. Renewed cities on this side of the kingdom have their benefits. Restored bodies to physical health is a wonderful cause, but they mean absolutely nothing if people aren't hearing about Jesus and submitting their lives to him. As Lord. I really don't want you to misunderstand me here. The Bible teaches that we should be courageous and creative in loving our neighbors, especially those neighbors which are in close proximity to us. That's part of submitting to Jesus as Lord. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But when we ask the question, what did Jesus send us into the world to do? The Bible puts making disciples of Jesus front and center so that with all of our courageous and creative love for our neighbors, we are constantly lifting up the name of Jesus explicitly. And what he has done on the cross, explicitly. And making sure people know they must submit to Jesus' rule or perish, explicitly. So if this is the case, what what does making disciples of all nations include? I would say, based on Jesus' words, it includes introducing them to Jesus, identifying them with Jesus and his church, and instructing them to obey Jesus in everything. It includes introducing them to Jesus, we might call evangelism. It includes identifying them with Jesus and his church. What we see in this text is baptism and instructing them to obey Jesus in everything, or teaching them, teaching them to observe all that Christ said. Before people can become Jesus' disciples, they must first be introduced to him. We often call this evangelism. Now, Jesus doesn't mention evangelism in our text, but it's safe to say that he assumes it. In the Great Commission, especially since he already made it clear elsewhere. So turn with me, Matthew 16. We've got a couple of texts. Matthew 16, during his earthly ministry, Jesus asks Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh 
and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against him. So I, I will build my church. There's Jesus with all authority in heaven and earth doing the Great Commission through his people. He's building his church, and what he says he's going to build it on is this rock. What is the rock Jesus is talking about? It's not just Peter, the man, and it's also not merely Peter's confession. It's both. Peter as the apostle, authoritative, authorized apostle of Jesus, along with the other apostles, and his confession, his apostolic witness, his authoritative witness to Christ. The rock is the apostolic confession as a whole which bears witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus promises to build his church on the apostles' witness. Not just anybody's witness, but the apostles' witness to him being the Christ of God. A message that includes verse 21. Let me read verse 20 real quick. Just. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What in the world? I thought this is what we're supposed to be doing here. Don't tell anybody. Why? Then he says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why don't go yet? Because the door had yet to be flung open to the nations. Gentiles were being saved here and there. But it's by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection that the doors for the Gentile nations have been flung wide open. You keep your mouth shut for now because when you go to the nations, I don't want you merely talking about what you think I am. I want you declaring my cross and resurrection to everybody. And I want you to go in the power of the Spirit. So he begins teaching them time and time again. This is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. This is what's going to happen to me. Then he gets out of the tomb by the power of God and says, Go, proclaim this now. I'm risen from the dead. You are my witnesses to all nations. This is what you're proclaiming. And that's precisely what the confession Peter makes from the day of Pentecost forward is. And the one he tells us to make in his own letter to the church in 1 Peter 2.9, You are my chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you can play video games the rest of your life. That's not what he says. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. That's Peter's word to us. That's the word he's left with us to proclaim now turn with me over to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, another place where Jesus... So there we saw in 16 that Jesus builds his church on the rock of the confession of the apostles that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. 
Now, Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You notice some similarities between there and the text we're in, Matthew 28? Notice, to all nations, and then the end will come. It's very similar to what Jesus says about making disciples and then being with us to the end of the age in Matthew 28. Jesus is referring to one and the same thing. Making disciples of all nations includes, first and foremost, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to all nations. Then he says something very similar in Luke 24, verse 47. He says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. So this is, we're in Matthew 28's Great Commission text. Well, this is Luke's Great Commission text. That that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We don't win the world with war or violence or threats. We win the world with the gospel of the kingdom and sacrificial love to see other people hear it and believe it. Part and parcel to making disciples is introducing people to Jesus by regularly bringing the gospel of the kingdom into their lives. Our life should be one big on-ramp to Jesus. Wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play, wherever we go, our life should be one big on-ramp to Jesus. I really love that right now we have seven brothers and sisters on the ground in East Asia, four on the ground in Turkey, two in Germany, one brother who ministers to the deaf in the Congo, two more on the ground in Utah, and one on the way, two in Oklahoma, another couple aiming for Central Asia, and one considering England. I love that about this church. But one area where we still need growth on the home front is in regularly bringing the gospel into the lives of others. Personal evangelism. Whenever you evaluate your own discipleship, we do this in our Christian life. How am I doing before you, Lord? We evaluate. Where are we at? What kind of disciple am I? Where do I need to grow? Where are my weaknesses? What sins do I need to turn away from? When you evaluate your discipleship, do you ever include in the mix of questions whether you're making disciples? Whether you're making disciples, which can really only be initiated through personal evangelism. I think we're often prone to limit our discipleship to the spiritual disciplines of like Bible reading and prayer and scripture memory, and regular fellowship with the saints. But evangelism and discipleship, disciple-making, is, is something we often overlook. But it shouldn't be because it's very much who we are as blood-bought 
citizens of the one who has all authority in heaven and earth and who has commissioned us to go and make disciples. In light of Jesus' command, let me encourage you again not to reduce your Christian life to personal holiness that's devoid of mission. According to Jesus, true holiness finds its expression in mission. So let's find ways to build evangelism and discipleship into the rhythms of our lives. Let's seek growth in this area by finding ways to make our lives more accessible to the lost around us. Just because we may be around lost people from day to day, even in the workplace, doesn't mean that we're making ourselves accessible to the lost. They can be around us and we just be closed off. I don't want to bring this up. I don't want to talk to them about this. We want our lives to be accessible to them. Engaging them takes humble initiative, much like the humble initiative that Jesus took when he came to save us and rescue out of our darkness. Make it a point to ask them questions about Jesus as you meet. Help them see why he's more valuable than their money. Why he's more satisfying than the sinful sex they're having on the weekends. Why he's a far better escape than drugs. Tell them how he's forgiven you. How the cross has humbled you. How his resurrection life supplies you with all you need from day to day. None of our evangelism efforts will look the same or even have to be as often as the next brother or sister's. Since all of us are at different places with marital status or children or education or vocational demands or whatever, but evangelism as part of making disciples should at least be on our spiritual health radar as a church. We should have the mindset of Paul in, our, in, in us who because of the wealth of mercy he received from Christ said that he was under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, to preach the good news of Jesus. Another thing discipleship includes is identifying people with Jesus and his church. That's all Jesus means by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the ordinance Jesus gave to the church to celebrate when sinners identify themselves publicly as Jesus followers. Baptism is no mere uh, uh, ritual. Just something we do from time to time. It's no mere ritual. It's, actually, it's, it's the actual visual expression that people are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Baptism says to the watching world that I no longer belong to myself, but to the risen Christ who bought me and who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Everything about me belongs to his lordship. Grace now controls my life, not my sin. Baptism also identifies you with Christ's church, a whole army of saints that loves what Christ loves and hates what Christ hates. Baptism marks you off 
from the world with the rest of the church and says the domain of darkness is not where you belong anymore. You belong with the inheritance of the saints in light. Baptism is part of making disciples because the church is part of God's plan in training and keeping disciples walking in step with their identity in Christ. We saw Jesus mention the church once already in Matthew 16. I will, on this rock I will build my church. He says it again. He mentions the church again. The only two places in Matthew in, verse, in chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And in both places, let me just take you there first. Read a little bit more in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we get this picture, even in chapter 16, this is a community where Jesus Christ's authority is on display and is working itself out in the relationships of his people. Then you come to Matthew 18, verse 15, a text we're familiar with in terms of uh, church discipline. But if we get the same kind of picture here, uh, start in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church... And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, an unbeliever. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So again... We see the authority of Jesus meeting itself out in the church, in his kingdom people. So both places, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, the point is clear that the way Jesus makes his heavenly authority visible on the earth is through the church, is through you. through local churches filled with baptized believers submitting to His Lordship, to His reign, who are walking in step with His commandments, who are growing every day in our obedience to Him. That doesn't mean we're perfect, but we're growing in our obedience to Him. Learning to live like that together takes instruction. It takes instruction. We introduce people to Jesus. We identify people with Jesus in his church. And now we instruct people in obeying Jesus. I get that from verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness to the great commission is not racking up decisions for Christ and then leaving new converts on the field to deal with the syncretism of the next witch doctor on their own. Faithfulness. 
Faithfulness to the Great Commission is not merely counting the raised hands, but laying our lives down to see every person who confesses Jesus as Lord mature in the faith. Mature in their walk with Him. Jesus' words will not allow us simply to aim for decisions and pride ourselves on annual baptism numbers. Making disciples of Jesus includes teaching them to obey Jesus in everything that he said. Jesus didn't die and rise again for one-time spiritual experiences. He died and rose again for people to have a Christ comprehensiveness about everything they value, think, say, do, and feel. He died to make a kingdom of priests who proclaim his excellencies. Not merely people who pay lip service to the gospel. Disciples of Jesus are to be a tangible reminder to the watching world that through Christ's death and resurrection, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He broke the power, their power forever. He snapped the dominion of sin that loomed over people, and he's bringing all things in subjection to Christ. What if you felt that way when you got out of bed this morning and were like, I am going to go meet with the church of Jesus Christ. God receives glory among the nations when the churches he builds look more and more like his son. And that only comes through instruction through patient teaching, through the nurturing of converts into the obedience of faith. That means winning individual converts among unreached people groups is never the end of our work. We must see them unto maturity. We must aim to see all of those converts firmly established in healthy faithful, self-replicating congregations among every people group, making sure they have Bibles to read in their own language, a clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sound doctrine throughout, regular care structures for one another, exemplary leadership to teach the next generation, servant-hearted outreach, happening among their neighbors, vision for making disciples of all nations, sacrificial giving, and most of all, abiding joy in the Lord Jesus himself and the work he's given them to do. This takes, to build this into people, takes time. It takes personal investment. It takes sacrificial love, patience. Did I mention lots of time? But nothing that's out of Jesus' reach. Our pragmatism and impatient lifestyles, especially in the society we, we, we live in, our pragmatism and impatient lifestyles will constantly tempt us to shortcut the more labor-intensive sides of discipleship. Like patient instruction... But if Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, then he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, and his ways are much wiser than our own. We would do well to remember his instructions in Proverbs 21.5. 
The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty only comes to poverty. The Lord has revealed His plan for making disciples and He has given sufficient, example, sufficient examples in the apostles who did not shortchange God's people whom, he, whom God obtained with His own blood. They ensured each disciple and each church was well nurtured and firmly established before moving to new territory. We see that in Romans 15. We see it in Colossians 1.28 where Paul says that his utmost desire was to present everyone mature in Christ. It's only then that he goes to Spain. I'm presenting them all mature in Christ. Then I'm going to Spain. And our aim should be nothing less. So the task belongs to the church. The task aims for the nations and the task revolves around making disciples, which means introducing them to Jesus, identifying them with Jesus, and then teaching them to obey Jesus in everything. That's the nature of the Great Commission, and that's what we are to be about as a church. I need to close. But let me, let me do so by addressing those of you who may desire to leave the local ministries here in order to go on frontier missions to establish local ministries among peoples where the gospel is yet to be known. If that's you, I want you to come see the elders after the service this morning. Without fear of what God might do. We want you to come and we want you to talk to us and we want to walk with you to see whether the Lord is doing that in you. So please come see us after the service today. We would love to help you toward that and serve you in any way we can. You might also let your care group leader and your care group members know so that they can begin praying alongside of you and asking you good questions to see, are, are you just going to have this fun experience on foreign, over, over in a foreign country? Or are you really compelled by the Spirit to go? There's nothing, hold, like, nothing here can hold you back. You just can't wait to go. They'll also be able to tell you, hey, I, I think you need to grow in this, this, and this before you even think about missions. So let your care group know. I would also urge you to pick up a copy of Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. It's in the book nook back there. And read it and keep it. I think I'm on my fourth time reading through that book. I love it. It's my, it's, it's my most favorite book of all books. I haven't read very much, though. I finished my first book my senior year of college. <clears throat> That's not something you want to imitate. And that one was, don't waste your life. <laughs> then I thought, hey, reading's pretty good. So I like to read now, but that one's my favorite. Uh, or I would encourage you to read, read uh, missionary biogra- biographies, like pick up the one on Adoniram Judson to the Golden Shore. Read Jonathan Edwards' The Life and Diary of David, David Brainerd. Uh, you will find out very... These are not super Christians. Like, I could never do that. <laughs> David Brainerd's diary 
and Ad, the things that Adnar and Judson experienced or John Patton will just, man, they will encourage you because you're like, wow, I'm not the only one struggling with that. But, I mean, they just have days where they are in, in the lowest that you can go in their lives and they're crying out to the Lord for help. These are not super Christians. It's a matter of faithfulness to God and what He's calling you to do. Make plans to come to Hold the Rope Fellowship next week as well. And visit the different booths that will be set up to inform you about the teams on the mission field right now, as well as the people groups they are working with. And then devote yourself to pray specifically about missions. And if you're married, I recommend that you do that alongside your spouse. Um, First, so pray about missions and see what the Lord will do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for, again, for your word and ask that you would help us all uh, follow in the footsteps of Jesus in laying our lives down to see many peoples come to know you. I pray that you would give everybody here who wants to stay a fervency of spirit in their ministry so that they may labor as one devoted to the Lord. And that you would move in the hearts of others to go. To go to those who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.